Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist. It's just me today. I'm going to be talking with you about a chapter from a book. The book is Child and Adolescent Development, edited by Damon and Lerner, published in 2008. This is chapter four I'm going to be talking about, written by Park and Burial, titled Socialization in the Family, Ethnic and Ecological Perspectives. So the reason why I wanted to summarize this chapter for you all is because I thought it was an interesting read, and I thought you might benefit from a summary of it, because I think some of the ideas in this chapter are not talked about enough, and I thought by talking about them, perhaps people like you out there might keep them in mind. So first off, I, th- I thought I would start with some questions that I think this chapter attempts to answer. The questions are, why do some children, as opposed to other children, exhibit greater social skills? Why do some children, as opposed to others, exhibit lower academic skills or internalizing behaviors like depression or self-esteem issues? Why do some children exhibit externalizing behaviors like anger and um, breaking rules? Why do, why do some children exhibit antisocial behavior while other children exhibit pro-social behavior? These are questions that I think this chapter attempts to answer through the lens of systems thinking and ecological thinking. So let's say you have an eight-year-old boy who is exhibiting defiant behavior at home and at school. So he is breaking rules, he is getting in trouble, he is you know, just being a general pain in the butt toward authority. And not in the cute sense, but in the clinical sense where we might see these families in therapy. So I want you out there in podcast land to just brainstorm in your mind for a second here possible questions that you might ask this family if you were trying to figure out what to do with this family as a therapist. What questions would you ask to gather data regarding the cause of the defiance? So so the family comes to you with this eight-year-old defiant boy and you need to ask them a bunch of questions to get at the cause. Uh, You don't know the cause yet, but you need to ask questions to get at the cause. And one's perspective and theoretical orientation will guide the sort of questions that you might ask. And again, this chapter in this book is attempting to perhaps broaden your range of thinking to include more questions. But I just want you to think about the sort of questions that you might ask this family. So just take a mental note of the sort of questions that you would ask And we'll see if I hit upon those topics later on in this presentation. So before moving forward, I just want to say that some of the presentation that I have today is my language and not necessarily the the language of the authors of this chapter, because it's, it's really difficult for me to not insert a little bit of my own terminology or language when I'm talking about things like this, because I, I like to talk a little bit off the cuff. The other thing I'd like to say about the chapter is that In my humble opinion, it's a little jumbled and difficult to read. But I think in general, I think it's a a well-written chapter that uh, attempts to tackle a lot of different topics in a a small space. So kudos to them for that. Um, All right. So first off, I just want to provide an overall summary of the chapter focus. This chapter focuses on the socialization of children or the ways in which behavioral cultural norms are transferred to children. In other words, 
how do families and systems affect children in such a way that get them to conform to cultural norms. And I know that that might sound a little funny as if it's trying to change a bunch of children into robots. To some of you out there, it might sound that way. But but all of us are highly affected by our families and our culture in ways that might not be readily apparent to us. And recognizing this in the world of psychology is extremely important and often ignored. So just a little primer on the history of the thought within child socialization and family socialization. The old model of family socialization can be characterized by the following phrase that I came up with. And that phrase is, the individual is affected by the mother. So the old ways of thinking mainly involved the idea that we have individuals and if they're affected by anybody, they're affected by their mother. And sometimes we might not even look at the mother. We might even just look at the individual themselves and ignore everyone else. So within this view, this old model, the view is, is that the causality vector is from parent to child. So you have things within the child that you're looking at. And the, if you're going to look for a cause, you're going to look for the cause coming from the parent. So the way the parent interacts with the child, that's what affects the child. And it's a linear causality model. So again, it's focused on the mother and it's focused on individuals rather than on relationships. The new model, however, for family socialization, it can, can be characterized by the, the following phrase. Individuals, family, and society affect each other. This is the new way of thinking. It's a systemic way of thinking or an ecological way of thinking that individuals affect families, families affect individuals, and individuals and families affect society and vice versa. So it's a circular causality. This is a systems theory way of thinking. This, this new model of family socialization focuses on all relationships in the family. It doesn't just focus on the mother-child relationship. It also focuses on the embeddedness of families in sociocultural systems, including time and place and history and, and et cetera. So the new model of family socialization is extremely complex and much more difficult to wrap one's head around. I would say that most people are aware of this way of thinking, but very few people, I think, utilize it in a consistent way when they're working with clients, uh, including myself, I would say. It's a much more difficult theory to think about and to hold in one's mind uh, because you, when you're working with someone, you know, an individual is talking to you in therapy. You have to think about what they're saying. You have to think about the culture they come from. You have to think about the region they come from. You have to think about gender. You have to think about their family. You have to think about the families that their parents grew up in, the region that they lived in in the United States or in the area, uh, immigration issues, language issues, political issues. You have to think about all of that while listening and trying to understand one person. This is much more difficult than just listening to one person and, and trying to look for causality just within that person or within them and one other person like their mother. I think in American culture, uh, it's safe to say that we are raised in a linear causality model. We're not necessarily taught in our culture and in our schools to think systemically. We're, we're taught to think more linearly. Like if you drink alcohol and drive your car, you will crash it. That's a, that's a linear way of thinking. And it's, and it's, you know, applicable in drunk driving uh, and very useful in that way. 
but we're not necessarily taught to think systemically. And let me think if I can think systemically about drunk driving. So, you know, um, if, if we see an increase in, in drunk driving suddenly, we might think, well, what's causing that? Well, you would say, well, it's because individuals are drinking too much and they don't know how to handle their alcohol and they're not listening to us and they're not following the law and, and they're breaking it. But a more systemic way of thinking about it is, well, what are the sociopolitical factors that would play into that? Like, is the economy not doing well, which is causing people to drink more because they're depressed? Are attitudes about drinking becoming different, causing people to drink more? Have we reduced our efforts to educate the public regarding the dangers of alcohol and, and driving? So this is a systemic way of thinking. And while I'm on this topic of system, so this is all my language, by the way, this is not the chapter, I'm totally going on a tangent. But whenever I talk about systems thinking with people, they will say sometimes, they'll say, well, isn't that displacing blame to people that don't deserve it? You know, for instance, with drunk driving, you know, you'd say, well, isn't the individual to blame? Why would you be looking for other factors that would play into the increase in drunk driving now? Why don't you just blame the people who are drunk driving? They all know they're not supposed to do it. So, you know, stop looking for other factors. And if we look for other factors that these individuals might feel like they have an excuse. And my response to that is, uh, yes, that's, that's, of course, important to think about. And if people think that they can get away with things just and blame societal factors and systemic factors for their bad behavior, then I would say there's, there's something wrong with them in two ways. They're not only doing something bad, but they're also trying to get out of it by, by blaming something other than themselves. And, and that's fine to say. Um, however, it's not necessarily the full picture, and it doesn't necessarily help us if we can't see the full picture. So for instance, with drunk driving, I, I'm not liking the fact that I brought up drunk driving because I'm not really prepared to talk about this. But while I'm on this roll, I might as well continue with this example. So with drunk driving, you can say, okay, well, we just have to somehow get people to stop driving drunk. Okay, well, let's just let's start educating people more. Well, what if people already know it? And there's some other reason why they're you know, driving drunk. Like, for instance, the economy is doing badly, which means that people are unemployed. And we know that when people are unemployed, they tend to get depressed and they tend to get bored and they tend to want to escape. And so they might drink more. Um, or even another factor, like there's not enough cab drivers in Seattle. We're not emphasizing that how easy it is to get a cab or we need to lower costs of cabs on Friday and Saturday night. So people are more and, you know, so people with not a lot of money can afford a cab or for poor people, maybe we need to provide cab vouchers or something. Uh, when you say this, you're saying, well, you're just rewarding people's drinking. And, you know, those are those are debates to to think about. But if we're trying to reduce, if we're actually trying to reduce drunk driving, let's look at all the factors system wide, not just attacking uh, one factor in a linear fashion, if that makes any sense. Boy, that was a long tangent. Okay. So a little caveat before I go into talking about the specific studies that this chapter talks about. And the chapter refers to a lot of studies, and I'm just going to be providing uh, a few of them. Uh, so a little caveat about cultural universality. A lot of these studies are conducted by Caucasian Americans that are middle class and mainstream. And the participants in these studies are often also Caucasian middle class. And they're often college students, too. So when we look at the data or the findings from these studies, we always have to keep that in mind, that it might not actually apply, the findings and the conclusions might not apply to people outside of that very narrow group. 
Does that mean we need to throw away the studies and say they're all worthless? Absolutely not. We just need to keep that in mind. Okay, so let's get into the specific research regarding the socialization of children by families and society. First off, we want to look at the parent-child interaction. That's probably, that's probably an intuitive place to begin. So research has shown that the parent-child interaction is linked with a variety of social outcomes, including aggression and moral development in children. And again, all of this is in the chapter. Uh, if you want the book, go to the book and, and you'll, you'll find all the citations for this research. So this chapter also talks about recent studies have found that parents who are responsive, warm, and engaging are more likely to have children who are more socially competent. So again, if you have parents that are responsive, warm, and engaging with the children, research has shown that the children of these parents are more socially competent. Also regarding fathers, it appears that fathers may play a large role in helping children with their emotions, particularly around conflict, through rough play or roughhousing. Um, when I read this research, it reminded me of observations that I've made in families where the fathers or the older brothers or the uncles are much more likely to, to play rough with children. And I never really thought about it until reading this chapter, that this experience of roughhousing teaches children important rules and standards regarding how to manage conflict and how to interact with other people. It might seem counterintuitive that roughhousing with your uncle in a constructive way might actually help you in your marriage 20 years later, but the research seems to suggest that, and when I think about it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, how many times have you seen roughhousing where it, it gets taken too far and someone gets hurt and they start crying? How do you deal with that? How do, how do you prevent yourself from getting to that point? How, how do you tell someone, hey, you're being too rough, or, or hey, I don't want to play anymore, or hey, I want to play, I want to roughhouse, but I, and I want you to play with me, and how do you manage all those interactions? These are important skills to learn. And so through the parent-child interaction, children are socialized in this way and taught cultural norms, taught how to behave in a way that is acceptable to the culture. Also, research has shown that Parents who are hostile and controlling have children who experience more difficulty with peers. So they study families, they study children uh, at home and with, with their peers, and they find that parents who are hostile and controlling of their children tend to have children that have more difficulty with their peers. And again, this all seems intu you know intuitive. I think most people would imagine that's true. But empirical evidence supports this common notion. And I think that sometimes clinicians don't necessarily think about this all the time. Um, certainly, there are a lot of therapists that do, particularly family therapists will pay attention to this, but, but sometimes they don't. And again, it's important to recognize the systemic nature of this relationship, that it's not just the parents affecting the children, but the children are affecting the parents, and the parents are affected by the larger culture. And all of these factors should be considered. So going back to the activity that I put forth when I asked you to think of questions to ask about the eight-year-old boy, one of the questions might be, what are the interactions like between the parent and child? Many of you may have brainstormed that question to ask the family, which is very smart of you. You're a very smart person. Um, getting more specific about the parent-child interaction, let's go to parental monitoring. So this chapter talks about how parental monitoring socializes children. 
And by monitoring, the book basically means supervision of children's choices of social settings, activities, friends, etc. And again, it's important to remember that parental monitoring of children is co-constructed by the parent and the child. Sometimes the parent or the child will be more dominant in that exchange, but it's important to recognize that they're both involved to some extent, if not 50-50. So as an example of this, uh, research has found that parents of delinquent and antisocial children engage in less monitoring and supervision of their children's activities. So for example, research has shown that parents who monitor and supervise less tend to have delinquent and antisocial children. So again, parents who participate in less monitoring and supervisory behaviors of their children tend to have delinquent and antisocial children. Now, the question that I had about this research was, where's the causality vector here? Is it one way or is it recursive, meaning going both ways? You know, for instance, can we blame the parents for these delinquent and antisocial children because they supervise and monitor less? Or are children who are delinquent and antisocial independent of their parents' behavior, do they create parents that tend to monitor less? I mean, I can think of examples if you had a difficult teenager, some parents might opt to just stop supervising them as much because when they supervise, it creates a lot of conflict. And they say, okay, I guess you're on your own and you know I'm not going to bother anymore because you're not listening to me anyway. So which direction does it go? And they don't really go into that in the chapter. And I think the research doesn't necessarily go into it either because the research in general just has to administer surveys. And these, this kind of research doesn't determine causality. It just it determines associations. And so that a lot of the research I'm going to be talking about, it's difficult to determine causality. So just a little discussion about research. Now I'm going to go on another tangent. Let's say, and I don't even know if this is true, it probably isn't, but let's say that being Christian as opposed to atheist means that you're more likely to ski in the mountains, you know, snow ski. So they find through surveys that being Christian is associated with skiing. Well, does that mean that being Christian causes skiing or does it mean that skiing causes Christianity? We would say intuitively that's probably not likely. It's probably some other factor that plays into it. This idea is often summarized by the phrase, correlation does not mean causation. So you might have factors that correlate, but they don't necessarily cause each other. All right, so another example of parental monitoring and how it socializes children. Research has shown that poorly monitored children children who are not monitored very often, have lower academic skills and lower peer acceptance, and they participate in more delinquent and externalizing behavior. So they break more rules, they're more angry, this sort of thing. So again, children who are not monitored very much tend to do worse in school, tend to have a more difficult time with peers, tend to be more delinquent with school, and tend to have more externalizing behaviors. All right, so now let's move on from monitoring and go to supervision. The chapter talks about how parental supervision will socialize children. Now, in the book, they don't give a clear definition of what supervision means, but I think they're talking about directing and guiding behavior. So how parents are directly involved in guiding specific behavior in a, you know, from a minute-to-minute basis. Uh, for example, in the research, it shows that a high number of restrictions placed on children was linked to fewer problem behaviors, such as school truancy or substance abuse. Another example 
that they provided in the chapter, research has shown that parental supervision positively related to adolescents' academic competence and psychological adjustment, adjustment, for instance, low levels of depression. So again, children who have parents who supervise their behavior more tend to do better in school and tend to not have as uh, much psychopathology. Another example Parental supervision negatively related to children's antisocial behavior and association with delinquent peers. So when parents supervise their children more often, the children are less likely to be antisocial, meaning that they break rules and uh, break laws and get in trouble and tend not to have a lot of empathy uh, for others. All right, so let's move on from parental supervision to parental cognitions. So this is the thoughts and schemas that parents have that socialize children. And the cognitions are basically your core beliefs, the assumptions that you have about the world. Like uh, Christmas is a fun time of year. That's a cognition. For some, they would have that cognition. For others, they would not. They would say Christmas is the worst time of year. And so these are beliefs that one has that direct how you think and, and feel and behave. So the, in this chapter, they talk about how parents transmit these cognitions to their children. For example, research has shown that children and mothers have been found to have similar goals and perceptions of others. Also, research has shown that mothers who placed a higher value on sharing had children who were more assertive and pro-social. All right, so let's move away from cognitions and go to affect management skills. The chapter talks about how research suggests that parental support and acceptance of children's emotions is related to children's ability to manage emotions in a constructive fashion. I find this idea to be extremely powerful, so I really want to emphasize it. Research suggests that when parents are supportive and accepting of children's emotions, this helps children to manage their emotions in a constructive fashion. I find that we don't emphasize this enough in our culture, that with children, we need to really help them with their emotional states. We need to reflect back to them when they're angry. You say, you appear angry to me, and I accept that. You're, you're, it's not okay to... Uh, hit someone when you're angry, but it is okay to be angry. And and why don't you tell me how you feel right now? These are important things to do with children that can help them to cope with their emotions. And I, I again, I find that well, for whatever reason, we don't emphasize it in our culture and parents fail to do it. And children will grow up in these families with a lack of emotional skill and will have problems later in life. And this chapter was smart to discuss this and to provide research that supports this idea. For example, research has shown that when parents are willing to discuss emotions with their children, the children are more aware and understanding of other people's emotions. Also, uh, research seems to suggest that through physically playful interaction with parents, particularly fathers, Children may learn how to use emotional signals from others to decode and regulate the social behavior of others. So again, through physical playfulness with parents, again, especially fathers, children seem to learn how to understand emotions in others and how to regulate the emotion in others. So you learn through play 
how to understand, how to empathize with people, and also how to change the emotion in others, not to manipulate them, but, you know, if someone's sad or happy or angry or something, you are practiced in the ability to uh, affect the others in a way that, that you want to, in a way that is socially conducive. Also, for example, parental comforting of children when they experience a negative emotion has been linked to constructive anger reactions in children. If you want to have children that have uh, constructive anger reactions, that don't have destructive anger reactions, then a, a way to foster that is by parents comforting their children when they experience negative emotions. Now, again, this sounds intuitive for some of you. They might say, well, of course, when a child is experiencing a negative emotion, you should comfort them. But not all parents understand that, believe me. And again, it's not, it's not discussed enough in our culture to help parents understand this idea. It's not as if parents are evil and trying to hurt their children. They, they might actually think that they're doing a good thing by not comforting them when they, when they have a negative emotion. They might believe that it's rewarding them by comforting them. And, it, you know, parenting is nuanced and cultural, and it's difficult to put into words. So, uh, so I hope you understand what I'm saying. As another example in how parents foster the development of affect management skills in children is found in the research that uh, found that fathers' acceptance and assistance with children's sadness and anger at five years of age was related to their children's social competence with peers at eight years of age. So this study, you know, they looked at fathers' reactions to their five-year-old children and then measured uh, these children three years later in their social competence. And they found that fathers who accepted and assisted with their children's sadness and anger tended to uh, develop children three years later that were more socially competent. So, okay, so let's move away from affect management skills and the parent-child interaction and go to other ecological systems. For instance, one's neighborhood. How does the neighborhood socialize children? For example, research has shown that children in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods reported higher loneliness, feelings of rejection by peers, anxiety, and lower life satisfaction. So as clinicians, if you're a therapist out there or some sort of helper, it's important to recognize the impact that one's neighborhood has on one's well-being. Now, how do you help them with that? Do you say, well, you just have to move out of the neighborhood? Well, perhaps that's a solution if, if that's not possible or not realistic. Helping individuals stave off the negative effects of a neighborhood that is destructive uh, it would would per perhaps be helpful. It's also found, uh, I think I remember reading, that when there are strong familial bonds, that this will negate the negative effects of a neighborhood. So perhaps strengthening the family can help someone stave off the negative effects of a neighborhood. All right, so uh, let's move away from neighborhood and move to school. So let's look at how school socializes children. And again, all this is in the chapter if you wanted to read it. For example, research has shown that children's positive and negative experience at school during the day altered the nature of the parent-child interaction in the home after school. So if children have a bad day at school or a good day at school, then this will affect the parent-child interaction when the child returns home from school. This, again, makes intuitive sense, but if you are a clinician and you're trying to figure out why 
little Johnny is so moody, one of the things you can look at is how he is doing in school and how he feels about school. This might be the only factor worth looking at. If you have a moody kid, there are a lot of things to look at, but it might come to be known after an assessment that the school environment is the main factor in the child's moodiness. And again, this is a systemic way of thinking, an ecological way of thinking that a lot of people don't participate in. As another example of how school socializes children, uh, research has shown that the extent to which parents are involved in school-related activities is positively related to children's academic outcomes. And I think this is common knowledge to some extent, uh, at least, it, you know, I, I've, I've heard it talked about often in my circle, that when parents are involved in their child's school, that the child tends to do better in school. One of the things that I talk with my clients about who complain about children who aren't doing well in school, one of the first things I, I start talking about is, well, how much interest do you take in their schoolwork? I find that when parents take a genuine interest in their child's performance at school, children tend to do better. And, and I don't mean an interest like uh, strict and critical or judgmental, like, uh, hey, you got a F on that, you know, test, you know, what's wrong with you? It's more like, hey, what are you doing in school today? Just sort of a, a neutral or an appreciative stance with, with children. Like, um, what are you studying in math? Oh, logarithms. Interesting. I remember logarithms when I was in high school. They were kind of confusing, but it was kind of interesting. And and uh, here, show me your show me your book, and you know what's going on. A lot of parents I find do not do this when when children feel that they're being paid attention to. They tend to thrive in that area. So if you pay a lot of attention to them in say their sports, then their then children tend to put a lot more effort into it. And if you don't pay a lot of attention to their schoolwork, then children tend not to put effort into it. And the problem is, is that you might be thinking about it a lot as a parent, and you might be saying, well, I really want him to do well in school. I, I really need him to do well in school. And I've told him a million times he needs to do well in school. But you haven't necessarily taken interest specifically in his schoolwork and what he's doing at school. A lot of parents just, just say things like, hey, kid, you better do well in school or else you're not going to have a future. Um, you know, that's an important message to get across. But if that's all that is said to a kid, a kid might not necessarily feel a lot of motivation to do the day in and day out work. All right, again, that's that's my words. That's not uh, the words from the chapter that I'm reviewing here. All right, so let's move away from school and go to church. How does church involvement socialize children? So, for example, in the chapter, they talk about research that shows that religious involvement in the eighth grade was predictive of 12th grade GPA and peer success. So, in other words, when you have uh, eighth graders who are involved in religion, this tended to predict 12th grade uh, GPA success and peer success. Some people out there might say, well, well, of course, if you have nerdy religious kids in eighth grade, they're going to tend to do better at school. And, and again, some of this research is obvious, but that's what sociologists and psychologists do. They tend to provide us with empirical evidence of a lot of intuitive findings, but, but sometimes not. Sometimes the empirical evidence is counter to our intuition, which is very much appreciated, at least by me. But let's pause for a second and imagine why why church involvement would socialize children in a positive way. 
for those who go to church or grew up in a church and had a positive experience, they might relate to this. And for those who have negative associations with church might not be able to imagine this. But in my experience, people run the gamut in terms of their experiences in church. They will say as a child that uh, their church involvement was destructive to them, was was um, was not a good influence on them, and they've been running away from the church ever since. And for others, it's completely the opposite. They'll say that they have a lot of positive associations with church. So why would church involvement help teenagers to function better in society? Well, I, this is all just hypothesizing on my part or some educated guesses about why this would happen through my experience. But in my experience, it's typical when teenagers are involved in youth groups for them to be uh, talking a lot about their feelings and supporting each other and also talking about social situations, talking about what makes them upset. For people outside of the church community, they might think that churches teach youths to only not have sex or to not use drugs, and certainly they do that. But they also spend a good amount of time, in my experience, talking about, again, feelings. How do you feel today? And how can we support you? And there might be a lot of crying and a lot of group work, and there might be a lot of mentoring uh, from older teenagers or even younger adults who are mentoring teenagers in, in church. There's also a fair amount of moral discussions about what's right and what's wrong. And it's actually a little alarming to me that with the reduction of church involvement in America, and especially in Seattle, since it's I think one of the, if not the most non-church-going city in the United States, is that when we take away the moral teachings that church often provides, we don't necessarily replace it with anything. Um, In fact, we might even be replacing it with television and reality TV and all that stuff. And now I sound like an old fogey, but, but bear with me for a second. Not to say that church is is universally and uniformly the best way for children to learn about morals, but at least they were talking about it, and they were talking about what's right and what's wrong. Like, for instance, when you are upset at someone and someone has hurt your feelings, is it okay to seek revenge? Church youth groups might talk about, about that and might say, yes, it's normal to have that impulse to seek revenge, but it's actually immoral to do so, and that you should reach out with love and try to understand someone. These are important lessons that I don't know if high schools or middle schools are uh, attempting to teach children this. Where do children learn about this sort of thing? Certainly, parents can do a lot, which is wonderful, and and I'm sure parents are trying to help. But in my experience, a lot of parents don't have those opportunities with teenagers because teenagers don't want to talk with their parents about anything, mostly. I mean, some some kids do love to talk with their parents about things, and those families have that strength. But a lot of kids, you know, they isolate and come home from school, and the parents ask, how was school today? And they're like, yeah, fine, even though they had this uh, wild day with lots of different variety socially, but they just, for whatever reason, aren't interested in talking with their parents about it. But they might be interested in talking with their peers in a youth group setting at a church. So in these ways, I think, is how children are socialized and why the research shows that church involvement resulting in positive outcomes. All right, let's move away from church involvement and how it socializes children to how parental or marital conflict socializes children. 
So in the chapter, they talk about a lot of research that points to how parental conflict socializes children. For example, research has shown that for mothers, but not fathers, greater marital satisfaction was linked to higher levels of warmth, affection, positive involvement, and overall positive parenting. It's interesting that the research found that this wasn't true for fathers. I don't know exactly what that means. I guess it's saying that fathers who have better marriages don't necessarily parent their children differently. But they found that for mothers, when they have a better marriage, uh, the mothers tend to better parent their children. Uh, The chapter also cites research that found that father's aggression toward the mother was related to children's internalizing problems. So when children witnessed their fathers being aggressive with their mothers, the children tended to have internalizing problems like depression and self-esteem problems. Also, couples who exhibited a hostile style of resolving conflict had children who tended to be described by teachers as exhibiting antisocial characteristics. Antisocial characteristics like lack of empathy, breaking rules, this sort of thing. So again, if you have an eight-year-old boy that comes into your office and is being defiant at school and at home, one of the things you might want to look at is the marital relationship. For family therapists, this is one of the first things they look at. But for non-family therapists, I find that they, they don't always look to this, especially if the parents don't present it as an issue. Um, you know, some parents and, and some kids might be really ashamed of how their parents aren't getting along, and they might not bring it up in session. So it's important to think systemically and to ask those questions and to look there, because for an eight-year-old defiant boy, the main factor or the one and only factor might be the marital relationship. A mediating factor in all this is that when parents resolve the conflict, even if the child doesn't see this resolution, this reduces children's negative reactions to the exposure to the conflict. So some parents might say, well, we could resolve the conflict, but the damage is already done. But what research has found that if the parents make up and, and resolve the conflict, that that uh, in all likelihood permeates into the system, this, this goodwill or this lack of negativity, and that that indirectly uh, reduces the negative impact of the conflict on the children. Another mediating, and again, and again, those are my words, those aren't the words of the chapter. Um, another mediating factor in how parental or marital conflict socializes children, research has found that positive parent-child relationships can serve as a buffer to parental conflict. So if there is conflict in the marriage or between the parents, then one solution to that, if you can't reduce the conflict, is to establish a strong bond between parents and children, because that will serve as a buffer to the marital conflict. I suppose that means that when children feel they have a secure relationship with both their parents, they are less affected or stressed out by uh, things like uh, their parents fighting. And conversely, you could imagine a child who is not securely attached with their parents, that they might be more devastated by stresses such as marital conflict. All right, so moving away from how parental conflict socializes children, let's move on to how social capital socializes children. Social capital is kind of a popular term 
in uh, my world right now to some extent. There are many definitions of it, and I'll provide just one of them. Uh, the def- One definition of social capital is that it's the benefits of cooperation within a social network. It's the perks of being a part of a group of people. You can imagine if, if you live in a particular neighborhood or if you're a part of a, a church organization or if you work at a, a workplace that, that you know a lot of people, uh, there are perks that come with that. You might not notice them, but you, you might have them. Like um, you're looking for a good doctor and you ask around and, and someone down the hall says, oh, I, I know someone or, or my brother is a doctor and I, I'll hook you up with him or I'll ask him what he would recommend. This is social capital. And conversely, you could imagine that if you move suddenly to another region and you don't know anybody, that you're really at a loss when it comes to this sort of thing. And, and you might have no idea where to turn uh, regarding your community. Uh, and this is something that I think people don't recognize in, in our society in, in the States. People move, I think, way too readily the effects of moving to another region are really profound. And and again, one of the reasons for this is because the loss of the social capital that you have built in the area that you grew up in or lived in for a while. Not to say that people should never move, but I I find that people in in the States move at at the drop of a hat without considering all the negative effects. Now, sometimes you're moving because you're trying to get away from your social capital because you hate everyone around you and you really need to get a new beginning. And I'm not saying that moving is bad. I'm just saying that I think we ignore the negative effects of moving. While I'm on the topic, I've talked with many clients who have told me about how they grew up in a family that moved around a lot and they changed schools a lot. And when they were kids... They obviously objected to this. They would say, I don't want to move. I, I have all my best friends here and I like it here. But our society doesn't necessarily listen to children when they object in this way. And they say, well, you know, daddy has a new job. He's got to move. So we got to go. And I'm not saying that, you know, parents should let kids run the show, but, but we don't necessarily value kids' opinions in these ways. And what ends up happening a lot of times, I think, a lot more times than I think people imagine it happens, is this causes damage to children that is very difficult to recover from. Basically, what happens is, um, although they might have tight family bonds, th- the bonds that they develop at school and with, and with friends and with teachers are totally ripped away from them. It, it can really create a, a rift in their foundation and how they see relationships. Uh, I find that people that have this experience have, have a really hard time trusting other people and treating others with respect not to say that they're awful people, but they just haven't really developed those skills because they don't necessarily feel as though they can really depend on relationships. People that have been moved around a lot, I find that people around them will report being hurt by these people. They'll say that even though at times uh, this, this person can be very nice and loving, at other times the person seems to just not even care. And I think that's because the person grew up in a situation where they were moved around and ripped away from people. And, uh, and often they're not only ripped away from friends and teachers, but they're also ripped away from extended family because it's not often that your entire extended family moves with you when you move. So I think we need to raise awareness of this issue in our culture. Not to say, again, that people should never move, but they should really take into account the psychological impact that moving has on children. All right. 
So let's get back to social capital and how it socializes children. And again, the definition is the benefits of cooperation within a social network. So the perks of being a part of a social network. So for example, uh, research in this chapter that they talk about found that when teen boys had social networks that included large numbers of non-related adults, these adolescent boys were found to have better school performance, better school attendance, and better social behavior. So again, when teen boys and their families had large numbers of non-related adults that knew the family and maybe helped the family out or mutually helped each other, these adolescent boys did better in school, they attended school more often, and they were better socially. And again, this isn't something that I think people often think about. You have a teenager that's defying rules. Well, how often does a therapist ask the family, how how many non-related adults are associated with your family? You know, it's not, it's, it's a very strange question, but a factor that might play a role in a adolescent's life and in their socialization. And again, this idea of socializing someone, of helping them understand cultural norms, understanding how to deal with their emotions, understanding how to deal with other people. I think a lot of people depend on just the parents. Well, like, you know, Hillary Clinton said it takes a village. I'm, I'm sure she didn't originate that. Who? I wonder who originally said that. Did Hillary make that up? I'm guessing she didn't. But anyway, it takes a village and it takes a lot of, a whole slew of non-related adults, non-related adults. It's kind of a funny phrase, but anyway, lots of people around the family just there, just helping and supporting. And again, this is a systems perspective or an ecological perspective on the socialization of children. And again, remember, I said way back at the beginning of this presentation that uh, the old model just looked at the parent-child relationship. Well, now we're talking about large groups of people, As another example, in the chapter, they talk about research that found that parents with more friends have children who are happier and who have better social skills. And I find that with a lot of people that I talk to, that parents say, I don't have time for friends. I work all day, I, I, you know, and then I come home and I have to do a lot of chores and I have to be there for my kids and I have to take my kids to uh, baseball practice and this sort of thing. I don't have time for friends anymore like I used to when I was younger. Well, this might be an incentive to make it a priority because, again, according to research, parents who have friends tend to have children who are happier and and who have better social skills. Why is this, though? Why would parents having friends create happier children? They didn't say in the chapter, and again, because the research can only look at correlations, they can't look at causations, uh, it's hard to say. Maybe it's it's even possible and seems, you know, a probability that uh, happier children have parents who have more friends because when you have if you're a happy kid you're probably easier to parent and therefore the parents might have more time to have friends so uh, hard to say uh, another example of how social capital socializes children is research shows that the more contact parents had with relatives the less disliked children were by their peers All right, so let's move away from social capital and how it socializes children and move on to how parent employment socializes children. So in the chapter, they talk about how research has shown that distressing social experiences at work were associated with parents having higher expressions of anger and greater use of discipline with children later that day. So when a parent had a bad experience at work, they come home and they tended to have higher expressions of anger with their children and greater use of discipline with their children later that day. 
this all makes intuitive sense, but again, without science, how would we really know if our intuition was was correct? And and it turns out here it, it is. Another example of how uh, parent employment socializes children is in the research that found that children had fewer behavioral problems when their mother's work had more autonomy and more problem-solving opportunities. So again, when when mothers had jobs that had more autonomy and more problem-solving opportunities, they had children that had fewer behavioral problems. So it's not only just uh, whether or not someone is working or not, but it's also the kind of work that the parents have. So again, you, you have a kid who is acting out, an eight-year-old boy who is defying rules uh, at home and at work. How many therapists are going to ask, what kind of work do you do uh, to, to the mother? Do you enjoy your work? Do you have autonomy? Do you have opportunities for problem solving uh, at, at your work? Because according to the research, this might be a factor in uh, socializing the, children, the child to defy the rules. Another example of how parent employment socializes children is in the research that found that fathers with greater job complexity and autonomy were less authoritarian and responded with greater warmth to their children and with more verbal explanations. So when, when we have fathers that have more complex jobs, and again, jobs that provide autonomy, they had more warmth with their children. So it's not just whether or not you have a job, but also, the, again, the kind of job that you have. And, and apparently, when it comes to parenting, the research seems, seems to suggest that fathers want complex jobs and, and, and jobs with autonomy, and mothers tend to benefit from, again, autonomy and more problem-solving opportunities. So why would this be? Why would someone's job affect the way that they socialize their children, or why would this indirectly affect a child's uh, outcomes in terms of socialization and mood and, and school performance? This is just guesswork on my part, so take her to leave it. But when a parent has higher self-esteem, they, I'm guessing, are in a better mood and have more personal resources to have patience and parent children and to give to children. And parents that are stressed out and feel worse about themselves uh, do not. And so this seems like a, a viable causal path. Another indirect factor in this might be that people with more complex jobs and and jobs that are more satisfying, I would imagine, are people who have more education. And people who have more education and more opportunities, people who get hired by jobs that they that they want, tend to be higher socioeconomic status and tend to have a lot of the privileges uh, that are associated with white, middle-class, Protestant people. So uh, I, I don't know if that's a factor as well. Um, if, if you're of a population that is being oppressed, and if you are struggling from paycheck to paycheck, uh, you don't necessarily have a lot of time to parent your children as well as you would like to. You might have to look at uh, oppression of society. And, and honestly, the chapter doesn't really go into this very much, which is a little surprising, considering how systemic they're trying to be. Racism, sexism, um, all the various isms are definitely a part of the ecology of our society and play a major role in how people think about themselves and the resources that they are provided. All right. All right. So let's move on from how parent employment socializes children to how economic stress socializes children. Research has shown that parenting behavior is adversely affected by economic stress. It increases hostility in the parents. Um, the parents become less consistent and they use harsher discipline. 
So if as a society, if we want to help our children, one of the things that we can do is reducing economic stress in people and in families. So when people talk about, and, and just to get a little political here, when people talk about how they want to reduce welfare and this sort of thing, well, when you reduce funds that are allocated for families in economic stress, you are not only stressing the parents, but you're also stressing the children. And when these children are stressed, they grow up to have more problematic behavior. So if we want to have a better society in the future, we should continue and perhaps increase our monetary support of families in economic stress. And just to talk to the cyclical nature, they didn't talk about this in, in the chapter, but perhaps, I don't have the research in front of me, but perhaps when you reduce funds to families in economic stress, that stresses out the children who grow up with emotional issues, who in turn have difficulty holding down a job and therefore need more economic assistance from the government, creating a, a never-ending cycle. And, and you know, you, you won't hear me get political very often, but um, there's me getting a little political. Um, so, so linear thinkers tend to tend to think, well, what's wrong with the individual that they need economic assistance from the government? What, why are they? They must be lazy. They must be a freeloader. Instead of looking at it as a, in a systemic, ongoing, ecological way, which is that maybe they grew up in a family that ha- that had economic stress and have difficulty with their emotions, which makes it difficult to hold down a job and therefore need economic assistance. And so the solution is to break the cycle, not to blame the individual. Now, uh, having said that, are there lazy individuals who don't want to work and want to just mooch off the government? Absolutely. Why, you know, certainly there are people like that. But treating all people that need economic assistance as if they're lazy is really misguided, in my opinion. Also, research has shown that under conditions of stress, parents are less vigilant in their monitoring of children, which again, as we talked about earlier with the research, uh, this will lead to more difficulties with kids when they're not being monitored. So a mediating factor in this economic stress is in the research that shows that that social support has a positive impact on parent-child relationships under conditions of stress. So when you have economic stress in a family, if you can't get the family out of economic stress right, right away, if you can provide social support to that family, that can mediate the stress and help the parent-child interaction. So the, the negative impacts of economic stress can be mediated by social support. And this this brings me to just another little political thing that I have to say. I'm, I'm not sure if this is even political, but but one thing that often doesn't get talked about is is social support. As Americans, we love to do everything by ourselves. We think we can be independent, and of course, none of us are. And it's not functional to really think that way. We all we need people. We need support. We need people around us. We really depend on others emotionally and practically. So whenever there's a problem in our society. There's a lot of things that get talked about, but social support, uh, I find, isn't talked about very often. For instance, with the Adam Lanza case, the autistic spectrum boy who killed his mother and then killed all those children in, um, the I think, the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut. The social discourse that has persisted uh, beyond that event has been gun control, which is, I, I suppose, uh, helpful. But but really what I proposed in the podcast, I think that I made in regards to that event um, right after the event is 
that we need to provide more social support for families. If this family, this mother who was uh, apparently having some difficulties personally and uh, had a a special needs kid, if there was more social support, because it doesn't seem like they had much, if there was more support for the family, that the tragedy might not have happened. Unknown, it's impossible to know what would have worked or what wouldn't have worked. But but I believe that uh, we need to consider that because say Adam Lanza had more things to do, say he, and I don't know his circumstances, so it's hard for me to really comment on it, but social support is extremely important is my point. And whenever we run into these uh, news stories where we find people doing extremely horrible things, in my view, a potential factor in all these is isolation and feeling as though they're not connected to the people around them. And so if we can foster that and intervene more with families, not just with families with kids who are about to kill a bunch of people, but really everybody, I think we can uh, eliminate a lot of our social ills by providing more social social support. So how would this social support look? I'm not exactly sure, but obviously by trying to foster natural supports, uh, natural networks, church, family, friends, neighbors, this sort of thing. Uh, could help. But but I, I sometimes even think that if that's not possible, if people aren't doing that, then maybe we just need more social workers, people who just take an interest in the family, spend time with the family. It, it seem, might seem kind of weird to have a government paid person who hangs out with the family and, you know, I don't know, maybe just like a, an hour a day or a couple hours a day or something. Why would we pay for families to have friends? Well, I think it could, it, it, again, it seems culturally strange, but I think it could actually have a, a profound effect on people. You know, if, you, if you're one of those people out there who have a lot of friends and a large social network, my cat is freaking out. You know, you know how cats just suddenly run from one uh, room to, to another? Well, I have hardwood floors and they don't get good grip on them. And they, so they, they tend to make a lot of noise when they're trying to run. It's like the cartoons when their legs are spinning <laughs> before they really get going. Um, so I don't know if you heard that, but, but anyway, if you're one of those people out there who have a lot of friends and a, and a good social network, then it might be hard for you to really understand this. But there are a lot of people in our, in our society who are extremely isolated in a way that you might not ever understand. And maybe you're one of those people. These people have a, have a much more difficult life and, and have emotional impacts from this. I mean, you might be able to relate to this. It's like when you're anxious about something and you're alone, the anxiety is much worse. When you're depressed, when you're feeling, when you have low self-esteem, when you're preoccupied with something and you're alone, it, it, it usually is much worse. And then you start hanging out with, with really anybody and suddenly you have better perspective. You start to suffer a little less and maybe a lot less. This is our nature coming into play. We need other people. We are tribal. We are social beings. We are not independent uh, units. We are a collective, and we need people around us. And so for those people that are highly isolated, it might not be a bad use of our tax dollars to pay for someone to hang out with them every now and then. Now, of course, that wouldn't be the end goal for the government to have friends to pay for people to hang out with people, but maybe they would try to get them connected. And in the interim, before they're connected with natural supports, uh, this one person would be more involved. We, we kind of have this system already in place to some extent. It's not nearly to the extent that I think is needed. There are social workers that, and there are funds available for this sort of thing. Big Brothers, uh, Big Sister program comes to mind, this sort of stuff. But uh, I think we need to do a lot more of it. Anyway, massive tangent. Okay, so getting away from how economic stress socializes children, 
Let, let's go on to how culture socializes children. The last third of this chapter goes into a discussion of how race, ethnicity, and culture socialize children. It's, it's hard to summarize all of it, so I, I'm not going to try. Uh, I'm just going to provide some highlights. So, so one of the highlights from this part of the chapter involves their discussion of American Indian families or Native American families. They talk about how between the years 1890 and 1920, American Indian children were forcibly placed in boarding schools with no contact with their families during the school year. And then after 1920, up until the 1970s, boarding schools were still a usual part of the childhood experience of many American Indian children. So for almost 100 years, you have children that are being separated from their parents. As a therapist, I can tell you that when children are separated from their parents, this has an effect on them usually. Uh, Children need their parents. They need to have that secure relationship, and there's really no replacement for it. Uh, and, And I see a lot of negative effects in adults who as children were separated from their parents to, to varying degrees, from, from extreme to, 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 to mild. So we have almost 100 years of systematically abusing children by ripping them away from their parents, by forcibly taking them away from their parents. And so this has an effect on an entire group of people. Um, it, does it affect all American Indians? Probably not. But, but according to the authors of this chapter, it affects the majority of them. For instance, due to abuse and neglect, American Indian children are placed out of the home at a rate five times higher than other children. So again, just let me repeat that. If you're an American Indian child, you are five times more likely to be forcibly removed from your home due to abuse and neglect. Now, is this due to racism on behalf of the social workers who come out to the home and see problems where there aren't problems? I would say that's that's likely. But I would imagine that a lot of this also has to do with the fact that a lot of parents and grandparents were negatively affected by this forcible boarding school placement, and this affected their parenting. We know from research, attachment research, that when you don't have a secure attachment with your parent, you tend to develop insecure attachment styles, which affects the way you parent your children. So if you have an insecure attachment style, one of the ways of parenting is to be very uh, cold and distant. And this creates, again, insecure children. And this can be taken to an extreme in some families where the parents are actually abusive or neglectful, causing the state to come in and take the child away. And again, I, I don't know much on this topic. I am just sort of elaborating on what was in the chapter. So it might be inaccurate, these stats. I I didn't confirm them. I'm just repeating them from the chapter. Another example of how ethnicity socializes children or affects children is American Indian children who retained their cultural heritage had higher self-esteem and lower levels of substance abuse. So getting back to the example that I gave in the very beginning of this presentation, an eight-year-old boy comes in to you as a therapist and is uh, defiant. The parents are saying he's very defiant at school and he's very defiant at home. Help us out. Well, one of the questions you, you might ask is about ethnicity. Maybe the boy is an American Indian 
child, and he is feeling disconnected from his culture in a way, and because he feels disconnected from his culture, it's creating some self-esteem issues in him and some, some issues that cause him to become defiant. And the treatment of this child might be for him to become more connected with his culture. This might be a factor in helping him to become less defiant. This is a, again, this is a systemic or a ecological perspective or a, or a multicultural perspective. The chapter also discusses Chinese families in, in some detail. The, the authors write that, uh, and I'm summarizing, I'm paraphrasing here, they write that mainstream views of Chinese parenting practices are misguided because Chinese parenting behaviors do not have a cross-cultural equivalence to European Americans. I, th- I think people might uh, remember hearing about the, I think she's the tiger mother or something. She wrote a book about how strict she was with her children. And a lot of mainstream Americans criticized the Chinese mother for advocating overly harsh parenting practices. And, and I'm not a, aware of the, the book very specifically, but uh, certainly I, in my anecdotal experience, I have run into a lot of situations where it, it becomes difficult to really understand parenting practices in other cultures. For instance, uh, Chinese mothers might seem very harsh to us and overly controlling, and perhaps they are, but it also might be that we don't understand the context in which those behaviors reside. And the authors talk about how in Chinese culture, parents are responsible for training children in a supportive and highly concerned manner. So uh, American mainstream parents might not really consider themselves to be responsible for teaching their children about life in the same way that Chinese parents do. And we might associate harsh training with being hostile or mean, but Chinese families, apparently, according to these authors, and and I would say anecdotally, it it kind of fits with my experience. I haven't given it a lot of thought, but it it seems to fit in in that Chinese parents, when they train their kids and they're very harsh with their kids, it's couched in a caring manner. The kids, for instance, when, you know, say you have a, a mainstream American child and they're parents come down on him very harshly and say, you did something wrong. I can't believe that you did that. Uh, What's wrong with you? That kind of stuff. The kid might walk away from that situation feeling bad about him or herself. Well, you take a Chinese child in a Chinese family and the parent does the same thing, says, I can't believe you did that. What's wrong with you? Uh, I'm so ashamed of you. Stop doing that. Because of the interactions he's had before with his parents, he might have the understanding that the parents are only doing this because they love him, because they care so much about him that they're willing to get angry at him when he crosses the line, and that his experience of this this harsh criticism is actually one of receiving love, that he interprets it that as a loving gesture because of, again, because of the context that he's in and because of uh, his previous experiences with his parents. So we can't just look at a parenting behavior and say it's good or bad. We have to understand the cultural context, and maybe more specifically, we have to understand how the child is receiving it. I find this to be a common misunderstanding among professionals in my field. There are certain notions that get thrown around in my field, 
as if it's universal, that this parenting practice is universally wrong. And I find that it's extremely short-sighted. Sometimes I have to bite my tongue because I'm not in a situation where I can really speak up very easily. But when I do have a chance to speak up, for instance, when I'm supervising people, I often speak up. And and sometimes I've even gotten into conflicts with my supervisees regarding this because they'll say something that I believe is culturally based and, and not necessarily true. Anyway, another side tangent. Okay, so moving uh, away from Chinese families, they they also talk about Latino families, but I had a hard time finding some uh, little nuggets in there that would be easily translated into the podcast, so I'm just going to move on. Um, The the last thing uh, that I'll talk about is how some children become language and cultural brokers, as they call it in the chapter. One in five children in the U.S. right now have at least one parent of foreign birth. So, so many children in the United States have at least one parent, if not both parents, who don't speak English very well and or don't understand American culture very well. And so in these families, a lot of times children become elected as language and cultural brokers. They become uh, interpreters. They become helpers for the family to understand what's going on around them. Uh, and certainly I've experienced this with some of my clients, some of the families I've worked with, the child will end up interpreting for the parents. So imagine that I'm providing therapy for a family and the 13-year-old is interpreting everything I'm saying to the parents and everything the parent says uh, says to the 13-year-old and the 13-year-old tells me what the parents are saying. It becomes very complicated. Uh, you know, as a side tangent, it's more professional to work with a professional interpreter. But sometimes I've found that professional interpreters are substandard to, to using a family member as an interpreter because the family member understands the family better and, and can interpret s- sometimes more accurately. And another reason is that a, a lot of professional interpreters that I've, w- I've worked with exhibit very unprofessional behavior. I, I've had interpreters, and that, this isn't universal, I'd say it's, you know, I don't know, maybe a third of interpreters that I've worked with. They either don't show up for the appointment, which is extremely annoying, but, but really more concerning is that uh, some interpreters get emotionally reactive. So, you know, family therapy can be a very uh, emotional setting and can trigger people. Imagine, you know, watching Jerry Springer. It's a very extreme example, but it's hard to watch people fighting and not be triggered yourself, especially if you have trauma histories yourself or whatever. One one example comes to mind where an interpreter was speaking in the non-English language to the defiant daughter and was talking and talking and talking. And I turned to the interpreter and said, are you interpreting what I'm saying? Or are you now just having a conversation with the family uh, outside of the therapy? And he's like, oh, well, yeah, I'm telling the daughter that she's a little shit and she needs to shape up or, or else her family is going to start punishing her. And he was talking for a long time to her. It wasn't just a couple sentences. And I, and I, was, and I said to him, that is not your job. And I, and, and I didn't know what to do in that situation because the family's there and I didn't want to humiliate him in front of the family. But that has happened to me many, many times. Anyway, that's a side tangent about, about uh, interpreters. All right. So children who are elected as these brokers are unique because in addition to the stress related to their own acculturation, additional stressors arising from their role as mediators between their parents and U.S. society. So again, going back to the eight-year-old defiant boy, you, a boy comes into your office and, and the parents are saying, oh, he's very defiant at school and at home. Um, 
you know, one of the factors might be that he's experiencing a lot of stress because he might be the language and cultural interpreter for the family. You know, this is a very stressful role to play and might be creating symptoms such as defiance. All right, so that's my summary of the chapter written by Park and Burial in 2008 titled Socialization in the Family, Ethnic and Ecological Perspectives, which is in the book edited by Damon and Lerner titled Child and Adolescent Development. I thought I would conclude this episode with a promotion for my band's new album. My band is called Bread Knife Incident, and we have a new album, our third album, available on iTunes. And as a way of promoting, I thought it might be interesting to just play a clip from the song and maybe talk a little bit about the song. I I, I feel kind of sleazy about doing this, honestly, and 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 it probably is. But some some listeners and some friends of mine who listen to the podcast have said that uh, they wanted me to do this, and so so let me know if this is extremely annoying. And, and I will stop it. So, so let's just start off with with uh, the first song on on the new album. The new album is called Cozy, as in you know being warm and cozy. And uh, the song is called Connected. So um, what can I say about this song? I wrote the lyrics in Eastern Washington. I was out there and randomly came across, actually, I think it was in Northern Oregon, and I came across a, a fair, a rodeo kind of fair situation with rides and horses. And Seattle can be very metropolitan, but you drive out of the city for a half an hour and you can be in extremely rural farmland areas. And uh, there was a, a bird, uh, there were these eagles, these majestic eagles, they had clipped the uh, wings of the birds so they couldn't fly away. And so the first line in this uh, song has to do with that. It's, I say, clipped bird tied to a post. She wants to fly away. Gone are the days of the past. All she can do is wonder what went wrong. I, I, I used this this metaphor that, that I uh, had experienced in real life and applied it to a fictional situation. Um, this song is a, a fictional situation. A lot of my uh, songs are fictional. I like to write about stories and situations, and, and this situation is a fictional situation in which a man is being hounded by a woman that he is with romantically. Uh, she is very paranoid about him cheating on her, and he isn't cheating on her. And because she is so paranoid and persistent about keeping track of him, it actually is, is pushing him away and making him not want to be with her. And he's actually trying to plead with her to be less jealous, which will help him to stay in the relationship. So again, the, the song goes, clipped bird tied to a post. She wants to fly away. 
gone are the days of the past. All she can do is wonder what went wrong. This is in reference to the to the woman in in this story. Uh, she feels clipped. She feels impotent, and she wants to fly fly away. And she's older now, and she regrets the days of the past, and and she wonders what went wrong, and she's she's depressed. A lot of my songs are not very happy songs. I'll just say that off the bat. Um, I'm realizing that right now. I'm I'm a pretty happy person, but my songs can be very depressing. I, I blame it on the '80s. I grew up listening to The Cure and a lot of that kind of stuff, Depeche Mode, um, you know, blasphemous rumors. Uh, these kinds of things uh, affected me, I'm guessing. I'm not sure. Um, okay. Uh, then uh, the next the next stanza is, a drunken map on a phone, convinced she is rejected, without any way to call home. She's all alone. She's not connected. This has to do with some imagery that I was involved in in real life when I was in Eastern Washington, um, trying to follow maps that uh, I, w- I was getting lost, uh, literally. So she's convinced she's rejected, uh, even though she isn't being rejected, and she she doesn't have any way to call home. This is you know a figure, you know, sort of a a play on words. She's not literally trying to call home, but she she feels. Um, she's all alone. She's dis- She's not connected. So when I was in Eastern Washington, my cell phone was was losing connection, and and therefore my GPS wasn't working, and we were getting lost. There were some dire consequences to the fact that I didn't have internet connection or GPS or anything, and so um, this was uh, kind of a, a real life metaphor for uh, this fictional woman. Uh, that feels disconnected and feels like she is all alone and she she can 't call home so uh, this has got to be really boring but but anyway the 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 style of the song musically is is really more important to me usually anyway i 'm not a big lyrics person i 'm much more of a music person and um, this song follows a a five measure style instead of a four measure style. Usually songs, the vast majority of music in the Western world is all dominated by twos and fours and eights and sixteens. But this song is, it goes on a five, 10, 15, 20. I like styles that aren't uh, the two, four, eight, sixteen style because these extra measures or these subtractions of measures, you, you feel like something's wrong or things are happening a little too fast or a little off kilter. This lack of the ability to predict what's happening adds to the excitement for me anyway. I think for other people, it's very annoying to them. <laughs> they want the four, they want the eight, um, they don't like the five or the three but I can't help it. I, I, I like to kind of mess with things a little bit. It's also my affinity for math. I like uh, mathematical patterns and uh, I like to incorporate them into music in the nerdy way that no one cares about. The song also has chords that I, that I just adore. There's a descending minor progression. The overall feeling is a, is a sad feeling. I, I like how things, again, mathematically descend in a in, a, in equal inter- intervals. Uh, for, for you music nerds or composers out there, you probably know what I'm talking about, how you might have a particular thing that you enjoy. But So let's play a clip from that. Again, this is the fictional older male in the song who is saying to the women, please don't assume that I'm lying and I might actually stick around. 
it's sort of a, a dick way of saying it. And, and again, this fictional male is not necessarily a nice person. The more he's a dick, the more she gets paranoid and starts assuming that he's lying because she feels disconnected. Uh, and this causes him to get more reactive and more upset. I wrote this song in a period of my musical career in which I was writing songs for dance clubs. I was trying to appeal to dance clubs. Uh, I, I knew a lot of DJs. I still do, I suppose, but I was hanging out with them much more then. And they were calling upon me to to write music, original music for, for dance clubs. And, and they, they actually even uh, hired me sometimes to play these songs that I'd written live in the club. I would be up there with keyboards and guitars and microphones and, and I'd have pre-recorded stuff as well because I can't play all the instruments. And, and people would be dancing in these dance clubs to this music. And it was an exciting time for my career because I really like electronic music. Normally the bands I'm in, it's, it's rock all right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself. I'm very sorry for subjecting you to all that uh, boring talk about music and stuff. Uh, if, if you hate it, please let me know. I'll never do it again. I promise I will not take offense if you hate it. I already feel sleazy, so I might not ever do it again. Anyway, please take care of yourself. Uh, really, I mean it. Um, Think about what you need and address those needs. Uh, reach out to people. Uh, connect with your friends. Uh, you know, pay attention to yourself because if you don't, you know, maybe no one else will. All right. See ya.